Hi, and thanks for joining the Think for Yourself podcast. Today's episode is the audio portion of a webinar conversation that Dr. Montramani hosted on April 15th, 2021 with Mike Rogers. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Okay, well, thanks everyone for tuning in. I am thrilled to have uh, former Congressman Mike Rogers with me today. Uh, really looking forward to this conversation. Couldn't be more timely, in fact, given the dynamics that we have in the world. Uh, I can't think of a better person to help me make sense of some of this chaos and these cross currents uh, than, than former Congressman Mike Rogers. So uh, before we begin, the traditional advertising that I will run through, um, which includes uh, last week I had Joan Williams who talked to us uh, about her book, White Working Class, actually a profoundly interesting and insightful book that's you know concise and, and to the point, which I loved. Uh, we talked about how uh, you know this class stratification in America is tangential to race, but yet related, and and how it's created a lot of political dynamics that um, otherwise are probably not as explainable uh, without thinking about class. That replay is available, uh, and the audio is going to get posted. Uh, Sarah Seeger, professor at MIT, MacArthur Grant winner, talked about seeking uh, life on other planets and exoplanets and the dynamics thereof. So that was uh, that was an interesting uh, conversation. Before that, I had Michael Howell talking about uh, capital, global liquidity, and sort of the flood of money around the world and how we can track it, manage it, monitor it, and where we can see it sort of reach the shores, if you will, of the real economy. Um, that replay is available. Before that, I had a fourth grade teacher, John Hunter, um, who talked not only about his world peace game, but also about going into meet with Leon Panetta and helping, you know, the U.S. military think about peace and, and the operating assumptions that may be behind them. Uh, Jim Latinsky talked about rare earth materials, uh, MP materials, America's uh, attempt to bring home the supply chain when it comes to a critical uh, material supply chain, specifically uh, rare earths um, and, you know, mountain pass uh, developing it. Danielle DiMartino Booth uh, before uh, talked about her book, Fed Up, but more importantly about pay attention to the bond market was her message. That's where we'll find out if there's trouble in the equity markets, paying attention there. Um, Emily Delibur talked about um, technology standards, 5G actually, something we'll touch on today, talked about how the Chinese attempt to control standards is actually the game that we should be paying attention to. Uh, Commissioner Kevin Warren, uh, little change of pace. We talked about sports uh, and the Big Ten and uh, athletics in a time of COVID, athletics in a time of uh, student athletes that should or shouldn't be compensated, uh, et cetera, as well as race relations we touched on. And he had a very personally interesting story. Uh, Gilman Louis, founder of the CIA's venture capital arm, uh, talked to us about innovation in uh, technology, the U.S.-China uh, race in technology, a recurring theme, actually, is one I'm sure Mike's going to talk with us about. Uh, but Again, that replay is available. And then I began this year with Elliot Higgins, um, founder of Bellingcat, the citizen collective of journalists that uh, really uses open source and social media to connect dots. Uh, really the essence of what I try to suggest in my book, Think for Yourself, which is connecting dots, being a generalist as important, if not more important, perhaps, than even uh, becoming deep and uh, an expert, if you will, uh, that there's value in connecting the dots. Um, so advertisements behind us. Uh, thank you, Mike, for tolerating that. I appreciate it. And thank you for joining me. I am honored to be here, Vikram. Thanks for having me. I, I, I can see that the IQ has steadily 
or has a big drop. My, what a, an impressive group. I'm glad that you. <laughs> well, no, I'm thrilled that uh, you, you have the time to join me here today. So uh, one of the things I like to do, Mike, is start off with you describing your own bio. Um, I mean, I can read it. It's impressive. There's just lots here, but, but I'd like you to sort of describe a little bit more of how did you become the person you are? Where'd you grow up? Kids, family, all that good stuff. Yeah. Well, I am uh, blessed. I have uh, two great kids. One, uh, my daughter's working at a hospital, graduate of uh, VCU down in Richmond. Uh, my son is uh, was the first. I'm, I'm going to brag here a little bit. Are you allowed to brag about your kids? You are absolutely. Uh, yeah. There's no buzzer. You don't have a buzzer. No. The, uh, uh, who is the first cyber warfare engineer from the U.S. Naval Academy? So he is now a young officer in the military doing cyber warfare engineering. Uh, on behalf of the United States. So we're proud of his effort there and awesome. proud of my daughter for the work she's doing at the hospital down there in, uh, uh, in Richmond. Uh, my wife is uh, an entrepreneur herself. She okay. uh, was the CEO of two startup companies that dealt with uh, security in really hard and difficult places. She served in Iraq for a year. And okay. uh, matter of fact, I always joke that despite my background, when there's a bump in the night, I asked my wife, I said, you, you might want to go down and look at that. That, that seems really bad. You might want to go down there and take a look. Figure that out for us, please. Yeah, yeah. She's, a, she's just really incredible. Um, I may be biased, but I think she's incredible. Um, and so me, I, you know, listen, I, I was a young military officer. I wanted to be an FBI agent so bad I could taste it. Uh, I had uh, grown up in a small town in Michigan and where one of my high school buddies' father was the SAC, the special agent in charge of the DEA in Detroit. And he lived a ways out of Detroit for all the right reasons, as you can imagine. And he got me interested in federal law enforcement. I was, he just talked to me a lot about it. And I said, wow, do you think I should be a DEA agent at the time? And he said, no, that's nuts, don't do that. He said, go to the FBI, a lot broader, broader aperture because I was interested in um, espionage and, and chasing Soviets at the time. I thought that would be the best work of all time. So went through the military, I applied, I got in uh, to the FBI. It's one of those great stories where I'm not sure I was their best candidate. Uh, you know, I, I got in at the bottom of the score, to, you know, list and I know all of, all of the things like, okay, you're kind of in the pool to be hired, but don't count on anything. And after a year at that time, if you didn't get hired out of that pool, you had to reapply. And it was, it was quite an effort. And I got a call one day and they said, hey, if you, we had someone drop out of a slot at the, at the academy, which was in Quantico, Virginia. And I was just finishing up my tour uh, in uh, Fort Ord, California. And they said, if you can be here in four days, slot's yours. And right. I literally threw everything. I had two good roommates. I threw everything in the garage and said, I, I'll be back. I don't know when, but I'll be back. Right. And I got in the car and I drove across and, and I got to be an FBI agent, which was really, I, I loved it. I, I, two things I wanted to do. I wanted to work uh, Soviet espionage or organized crime. I just thought both of those sounded fascinating. Yep. And I was a young agent. I was 26, which was real. I was the youngest member of my class at the time. Uh, and uh, that, I got assigned to Chicago to work organized crime. And I thought, man, I just died and went to heaven. Oh. I got to chase Johnny Apes and uh, No Nose to Franzo and a guy named Goggles and a guy named Diesel. And uh, just had, I mean, re really, I can't even believe they paid me to do it. I would have probably done it for free. Thank God I didn't tell them that at the time. Uh, so got through that and decided to, to get into to politics. Um, yep. You know, I looked at it as an honorable thing. 
never looked at it as uh, something that wasn't honorable. I didn't seem to have the same flavor it does today. Uh, my mom was the first woman commissioner uh, in our county, a uh, county commissioner. And so, and she served for a term and got out and went back to work. Uh, my dad did the same thing. He was a town, local township official. They were just engaged in the community as well as the business community, small business folks. My dad was a, a teacher. Uh, my mom ran the local chamber of commerce. It's the small, you know, thousand person chamber uh, that she helped build and develop in a small community. So really community oriented people who believed in free markets and all the good things that happened in the world. And so went through that process. I, I can't believe I won. I didn't know what in the hell I was doing. I decided I was going to run for the state Senate um, just to get my political chops. Yeah. Uh, I'll never forget it. I, I, there was, I was out campaigning one day, you know, so imagine going from an FBI agent on a Friday behind the bushes, taking people's pictures to a candidate for office on a Monday in front of yeah. the bushes, getting your yeah. picture. Taken. And so it was a bit of a transition, but I went through all that. Uh, and I, I will never forget this. I was out, there's a farmer. It was, I had a, a, a little bit of a city area, uh, but mostly it was, uh, was rural. And there was this huge farm on a really important crossway in the middle of this county. Uh, and I thought, man, that would be one of those spots for one of those big, ugly four by eight campaign signs, right? <laughs> so, and I saw the guy working on his tractor in the field and I, and I thought, well, I, if I'm going to win, I, I'm just going to have to get over this. I got to, you know, climb over the fence. So I climbed over the fence. I went up and I go through my spiel. You know, I served in the army and the FBI and blah, blah, blah. And nice family. And he says, uh, well, uh, I said, sir, can I count on your support? And he said, well, uh, no. And I went, oh, and I said, uh, yeah, but you just say I was kind of honest and trustworthy. And he said, yeah, it did. And I want to keep you that way too. Uh, so that was my first one. I, I went home and I went, I'm not sure I've done the right thing here. By running yeah. uh, but that was great. I ended up winning uh, that race. I won the closest congressional race in the country in 2000, uh, 88 votes. Uh, most people didn't pay attention, mainly because we had a, a pretty close presidential race that year. Uh, and so I was fortunate. I was able to get into the issues in Congress that I really was interested in, uh, which I served on the Energy and Commerce Committee, which had such a broad scope, uh, as well as the Intelligence Committee, which I ended up rising up to be chairman. Uh, and through all of that, uh, just had a phenomenal experience. I got a PhD in things, not because I went to school and got an accredited school to do it, but I had access to the most important minds in the country on just about every topic. And awesome. Uh, where I think Congress goes wrong is they don't take advantage of that. I mean, I, if I had an economic question and I did, I brought in some of the top economists said, would you come in and teach me about, uh, you know, what's going on in the, in the melt, the crisis, the meltdown, financial meltdown. And so you get to spend time with these brilliant people. I learned a ton and I did the same thing in intelligence. I self-taught myself cyber. I was not a cyber guy, self-taught myself uh, that. Uh, same with space and security in space. Didn't know much about it when I got there. Uh, figured out I better learn it. It was the majority of the intelligence budget is space. Most people don't know that. Uh, yeah, it was huge. And so I figured, well, I better understand it. So I brought some of the best minds uh, in the world at that time uh, that that were engaged in those discussions and spent time with them and learned a ton. So, uh, you know, a lot of people look at Congress as a terrible and horrible place. And there's a lot that's going on there that's terrible and horrible for sure. Uh, but as a member who is passionately curious 
it was you you die and you go to the you know the candy store i mean it's just unbelievable the things you can get access to and learn so that's yeah. kind of my trail i and again being chairman of the intelligence committee was one of the great honors of my life sure all 17 agencies yeah. um i did it in a very bipartisan way i grabbed my my uh, i called him a partner in this he was democrat from i'm a republican democrat from maryland where he uh, he was a prosecutor, I was an FBI agent, and I said, "Man, if we can't figure this out, shame on us." Sure. And we did, and we accomplished a ton uh, over the time that we were there and did it together. And it, I think we showed the world that you can do things in a bipartisan way. Doesn't mean we agreed on everything, but we we agreed that it's okay sure. to disagree, and we'll yep. come to a conclusion, right? Like everything you do in business or your personal life happens a lot every day to every American. Sure. Somehow Congress has forgotten that. Uh, and so we worked through all that and did some great things and, and, uh, awesome. I, once I got out, decided to get into, uh, uh, I do a lot of cybersecurity work, some startup work. I'd invested in some startup companies that are doing okay. And, uh, and, uh, I'm just having a ball, honestly. Good for you. Well, that's awesome. Like, so one of the things that you hit on, which is uh, a topic I have here on my list and actually a question that was also sent in, uh, earlier from, uh, from one of my more frequent interactive listeners who couldn't join, um, who said, what about soft power? Soft power has historically inspired individuals to go in. And just hearing your, your background, like you sort of say, look, I wanted to go get the Russians. I wanted to go after the Soviets. I wanted to get after the bad guys. I mean, was it, was there some sort of cultural motivation or inspiration? Was it, was it a movie? Was it sort of, a, you, you, know, you know, some people like Godfather, I needed to go into, I wanted to go into the organized crime world and go after those guys. Or it was something about, you know, some inspirational uh, Hollywood creation that, that, that motivates it. But I'm sort of curious, what inspired it? Inspired my public service? No, the, the specific objective of wanting to go in and either be a cold warrior, if you will, or against organized crime, as you were saying? Um, you know, I don't know. I can't, I'm the youngest of five boys, you know, so I took my lumps along the way uh, and survived to tell the story. Uh, and so part of that, I think, you know, I was just drawn to that notion of law and order. Uh, you know, my dad was kind of a pretty tough guy. He was served in the uh, Air Force in the Korean War and and with five boys, discipline was really important to him, as you can imagine, uh, and keeping us on the straight and narrow of which all, all of us did. Uh, so I was just, just kind of attracted to that thing. And I just thought it would be great to have that public impact, that service component of a servant in the military, which I loved. It was great. I didn't serve long, but I served long enough, as I say. I, I tell people I got more out of the Army than the Army probably ever got out of me. Um, and the, the FBI thing was just something I really wanted to do. I thought it was a great way to you know, spend your life endeavor uh, trying to right wrongs, protect people. Those kinds of things were just really something I was drawn to. And I tried to pull that through into Congress as well. I wanted to go to solve problems. Yep. Uh, and, you know, if you look at Congress today, people don't go to solve problems. They go to be famous. Yep. Uh, I want to be the number one social media guy. I want to be the number one whatever. Yeah. And I tell you what, that, that, is, that defeats the purpose of being a legislator. Legislators shouldn't be all that glamorous, candidly. Sure. It's about sitting in the back room, you know, you know, arguing, debating, discussing, you know, zeros and ones, if you will, Yeah. But to yeah. get to a better place, that part's lost. And so that I, I was drawn to all of that. And then as chairman, I think we showed how you can do that. Yeah. Uh, and so, and I'm a big believer in soft power as well. Yeah. Um, 
a yeah. matter of fact, I argued for years uh, in the beginning, we didn't use our economic prowess as much as we needed to uh, in, in order to help influence uh, the outcome of difficulties around the world, including our allies for US interests. Uh, it's, that's changing a little bit, uh, but you know, in order to have soft power that works, you gotta have a little bit of hard power too. Yep. Uh, you know, I always said that nobody really wants to negotiate with the United States, but it sure is a lot easier to yes, if you have the 101st Airborne over one division and a seventh fleet over the other, right? Don't have to use them, but boy, it's sure good to know that they're there when, you, when you're in those negotiations. Yep, yep, uh, it's, it's fascinating, Mike. I mean, one of the things I wanna hit, wasn't on my list of questions, but you've taken us there and that's the beauty of these types of conversations. Uh, partisanship and sort of, you went in to solve problems and today the people are trying to be fixed. How do we go back? And maybe the other way to ask the question is, would you go into Congress today? Would you run for office again? If you, knowing the environment we're in today, would you do it again now? Uh, well, I don't think I'd run for the house if that's what you mean, but you mean, would I do it uh, esoterically or do I, would I really, oh, sure. do? I, mean, listen, I'm not, I, I would go back into politics if, uh, you know, I, I wanted to get out. I wanted to get some business ideas and some things I had in the business world, uh, uh, that I wanted to accomplish. Uh, and as I said, I wanted to get the stink of Congress off me, you know, <laughs> I mean, Lord, that place you get blamed for everybody else's bad behavior. Um, and so I would, I, I'm not going to say never, I, I still, I like what I'm doing. I think we're having an impact. I think we're having an impact on security, all of those things. How do you go back? I think it gets worse before it gets better because people are rewarded now, uh, by the craziness in social media. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and, and it used to be the loudest people sometimes weren't the most rational, even in a political campaign. And you could, you could understand and appreciate their perspective without inviting them up to the, to run the microphone. Well, now they have their own microphone and all of them congregate and it's the loudest voice and it pulls members of Congress, you know, they go home and they go to the grocery store and they go to town hall meetings. And the people who are the loudest voices now and magnified by social media mean that they don't even want you to work together. They don't, you know, even toward the end there, it was, you know, my own party was giving me grief for working for Democrats on certain issues. Yep. Um, and again, I, I don't never believe I sacrificed my principle, but at the end of the day, progress is important. And yeah. So I, I think it gets a little worse. I think you, you have to have voters who start to understand that they're, they're actually getting the Congress that they want. And the one that they want, I don't think they really do want sure. uh, this hyper-partisan fight over who gets to turn the lights on in the morning is hardly productive to where we're going. Yeah. And in a world that's changing so fast with technology, we better get over that pretty quickly. We got a little bit of rope here, but not much because our yeah. adversaries are moving out pretty smartly and they don't have these problems, right? They're, they don't have freedom either, but they don't have these problems. And so we need to understand who we are, what we have stop disliking each other as much as we do and yeah. kind, of, kind of join the notion that this we're better if we go together. It doesn't mean we have to agree on everything. That's right. What about the whole idea that gerrymandering has resulted in all this partisanship, that there's very few actually contested elections, that the battle is in the primary. And for me to win the primary, if I'm on a left-leaning district, I need to be left of left of left of left. And if I'm on a right-leaning district, I gotta be right of right of leaning right. And therefore now I've committed to these sort of extremes and I go there and I have to be loyal to what I said I would be to be consistent. And so therefore there's no hope. 
Yeah, I mean, gerrymandering is, is I don't think it's healthy. Uh, how you do it, by the way, is so important because remember, uh, your nonpartisan commission is my partisan commission. You know, you'll get, you'll get those forces colliding. Um, and, you know, the simplest lines about how many breaks you can have in each uh, local jurisdiction, all of that is getting to a better place. But these notion where you had these, you know, that we call them salamander districts where they're it looks yeah, like a salamander exactly. by the time it's done. You know, that that's kind of ridiculous. Uh, and so we need to get away from that. Um, and listen, I was in one of those 50-50 districts and stayed there for 14 years and I had good re-election numbers. I went home a lot. Didn't ch didn't change me fundamentally. It just, it, it makes you want to find where you agree versus yep. always talking about where we disagree. And I think that's a benefit of that. Uh, so we're going to have to look at that. I, I just make we just need to make sure it's not done. Remember, the political operative machine in America is live and well, mm -hmm. and so it will find ways to win at all costs. And I'm talking both parties have this problem. Yeah. Uh, there are people that make really good wages, getting up every morning trying to figure out how to screw the other party. Uh, and how they get a permanent majority. It happens, you know, this notion that it's all, uh, you know, sunshine and roses is just not true. And so how do you crack that nut, this big political industrial complex uh, yeah. that has generated? Um, so I, I would argue does more harm to the, to the, to the forward, yeah, to progress than anything we have. Uh, I'll never forget one of my first votes uh, was, a, was a pretty heavily regulated, and remember, I won by 88 votes, really heavy uh, regulation that I thought was going to cost money and not not help people. And so I voted against it. And everybody in the industrial, political industrial complex, said, oh, you can't do that. You got to, you won by 88 votes. I said, yeah, I'll go home and explain it. Mm -hmm. I'll tell them why I did it. But I, I feel obligated to do this. So I voted that way. I went home. And before I, I got off the airplane and went to a, a local union uh, uh, shop that was going to take us into the to the car factory. Remember Michigan, and uh, and I, by the way, I hadn't. They wouldn't allow me in during the campaign. Uh, they allowed the other party in, but not yeah. me. Okay, it's really interesting. So I I cracked that nut. I'll never forget this. I said, oh, I just need to use the restroom. I walked in to use the restroom right over the urinal. Was my picture saying how I hated workers? And I mean, oh. literally, my first vote. I fly home. I'm like, my God, that's pretty good. That that was a, a less than 24 hours. I thought, wow, this is a, this is real. Uh, but but my point of that is, really? I mean, yeah. really? <laughs> I mean, but that happens because there's these institutions yeah. and organizations that are designed yeah. to make you not like the other party or or like each other in some cases, yeah. which I think is unfortunate. Yeah. So let's let's shift gears for a second here, Mike. Um, we talked about polarization here. One of the things I think that's essential is strength here can help us with us in the world, if you will. Alternatively, one can conceive it as a threat outside can help us come together inside, if you will. So the big, big elephant in the room is the US-China relationship and what that might mean. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts at the highest level of how we should think about that. And then I want to drill down specifically on some of the topics you've done a lot of work on, whether it's 5G or technology standards or surveillance logic, et cetera. But before we get there, highest level, how should I think of the U.S.-China rivalry? Uh, well, they are at the very least a competitor and more likely an adversary. 
their interests and the U.S. interests and uh, liberal democracy interests do not align. Uh, and where they're looking at their role in the world is something we should be concerned about. So they're trying to control natural resources. And if you look, and, and they'll do this over 50 years. They don't, they don't have these quarterly, they don't have the quarterly pressure, nor do they have the two and four year election pressure uh, that uh, allows them to think they have this long lens view of the world. And so they're moving out smartly on all of that. And with the, with the trouble and the turmoil you see in the United States, they're, they're using this to their advantage around the world saying, hey, see, America doesn't work. They're no longer great there. And I'll tell you the story about Russia here in a second that, that I think is pretty illustrative. But they, they were basically, uh, they're using this now currently. So they, they have a, a propaganda apparatus they put together and they're moving out. And what they're arguing is an author, authoritarian they call it capitalism, it's not really, but authoritarian capitalism is a far better way. It's more sustainable. We're gonna be here forever. Look at these clowns in the United States. They can't even get an election to go right. And so that's really where they're at. That's why what you saw in Alaska was such a telling moment mm -hmm. uh, when China basically came to the United States and said, uh, and said basically, guess what? You guys are, are no longer large and in charge. We are all that we are at least equal, if not better, right? Which tells you that's the message they're taking around the world. And some notion, and there's a whole generation of Americans don't know that they can be in second or third or fourth place, yeah. right? They just think we're automatically in first place. Well, there's a lot of work, a lot of effort, a lot of, uh, and I don't mean just by the government, I'm really talking about the economy and business leaders and entrepreneurs and all of the things that got us to where we are. You know, we start undoing those things. China knows that's to their advantage and they're going to take advantage of it. So that's where they're at. They're building up their Navy. They want to have a, a blue water Navy uh, by 2030, which they will. And by the way, they don't just say a blue water Navy. They say a blue water Navy that competes with the U.S. Navy anywhere in the world. Right. That's different. That means that changes our national security calculus. Uh, they want to be data dominant by 2025. Um, and if you look at why the, a lot of the tech entrepreneur leaders here are saying, well, they're ahead of us. China's ahead of the United States in their AI algorithms. They're not any better. Uh, but what they have is these massive data sets, data lakes that were coerced. Remember, the government took the data. They didn't ask for it. They didn't pay for it. They took it. Uh, and they can run those AI, AI algorithms across a larger data set. And for those tech folks on, the, on the, the, the Zoom here today, they'll know that that makes their algorithms a little bit better because they have more data to, 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 uh, to get through the decision matrix on. And so they're gonna do that. And by the way, this is what this next generation really needs to understand. Uh, you know, People kind of look with a little bit of awe of China's ability to do what they just did. And by the way, this combination took 630 million Chinese citizens out of poverty. I'm for that. Right? That's a good uh, uh, outcome, but it's also got this authoritarian part that's scary. They have this social credit scoring system yep. that the Communist Party uh, has set up, uh, and each citizen of China, based on all this data that they collect, right, from your smartphones to your laptops to your heart to your uh, desktops, they give you a score. And if you're under a certain score, you can't buy an airplane ticket yep. uh, to travel inside of China. Or a plane or a train ticket or a bus ticket. You can't go see your family. Some you have to get a pass to leave your neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. So you think about what their what data dominance means to the Chinese Communist Party 
and why those of us in the national security space are saying, hey, we need to be careful about the 5G build out. You know, yeah. if, if it's patched in Beijing, they own your network, right? That's, that's my thing from the very beginning. Why would we allow them to do this? And what, what do you mean by patch? Sorry, Mike, what do you mean by patch in Beijing? You're saying if something has firmware that can be updated remotely, yes. therefore we've given them the Trojan horse. Absolutely. If I have the ability to have administrative access anywhere on your system, even if it touches it, believe me, I'll own your system. Yep. Uh, I'll get in there. And so this notion that they're going to have uh, gear on the towers in 5G, by the way, so we're pushing out uh, the management uh, of networks out to the edge. That's what edge computing, right? That's all that discussion is, which means that each of the, those devices will be making more managerial type decisions, right? Yeah. Uh, and the, and somebody has to patch little holes or update administratively. If I have the ability to control the patch that goes into that that uh, piece of equipment on that tower, I win, yeah. right? I'll be, I'll be able to put things in there. And if you look at what happened in Solar Winds, I can you know I can bore you to death on yeah. those administrative droppers that they left that the U.S. government still hasn't gotten out of the system, right? And so this it, it is this collision of ideas. Well, shouldn't they be able to compete? I agree. Yes, they should, but they should have to actually compete the yep. way Western uh, uh, businesses have to compete. Uh, and they shouldn't do it with the support uh, of, the, of the Chinese Communist Party that lends them money, that gives them access to market access, that controls what, you, uh, what uh, Western vendors can do inside of China. None of this is competition. And they're doing it because just think of this, if I can do that same social credit scoring system on Vikram and you start a business and you go, gosh, this would be really good in Beijing or Shanghai or fill in the blank. Guess what? They can look at that and go, you know what, Vikram, you didn't score high enough. You said something bad about the Chinese Communist Party. You don't get to do business in Beijing. That's really what data dominance means for China. And that's how they know they're going to keep control, the Communist Party of China, through having that data dominance. And that's why all of these things seem esoteric, the fights, but they're critically important between liberal democracies and autocratic uh, states. I mean, it sounds like, Mike, what you're saying is this is ultimately a war of values. And so if you get back to whether this sort of freedom dynamic interactive systems that the West tends to uh, you know, recommend and sort of promote versus this autocratic control uh, logic, human rights come front and center there, whether it's this individual focus or the group, the primacy of the group, if you will. Um, and, you know, look, we, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how that may come into play here, but we have what's going on in Xinjiang with, we also have what happened in Hong Kong with some of the uh, national security laws. And this is my, my terrible labradoodle you hear in the background. That's fine. Sorry. It's authentic. <laughs> He's joining the conversation, right? I love it. Um, the, uh, so we've also got what's happened in Hong Kong from a political rights perspective and possibly going down the direction of human rights. And then there's the, the, the big worry, I think, uh, for those in the West that are becoming increasingly a topical uh, issue is Taiwan. Um, and, and what that may mean, because that is, in theory, uh, a democracy uh, in the neighborhood of non-democratic uh, power. What are your thoughts on that logic of human rights going into political rights and possibly even the whole very system collapse, conflicting with another system? 
Yeah, you know, uh, I think it was John F. Kennedy said that one that America has a destiny and, and maybe not a choice to be the last defender of the walls of liberty and freedom. Pretty powerful uh, rhetoric, um, I thought, and and it and it spoke to a whole generation of Americans that understood that hey, we're going to have some sacrifices that other countries won't have to make, but for that we get this freedom, and we get to sell freedom around the world. I thought that was really powerful. We've kind of lost that. Did did it? Did anyone have a collective outrage at any cocktail party in America about the fact that Hong Kong just had all of its liberties stripped away by the Chinese? And most companies were saying, "Well, you know, it's, I got another. I got to. I got to sell a little bit in China. I guess I'll keep my mouth shut, right?" Yeah. That's a win for the Communist Party of China. Yep. I mean, basically, the rights of every Hong, Hong Kongian gone. Oh, you know, they just whoop, you're done. Now you're you're part of the Communist Party regime here. And we're they arrested journalists, and I mean, they're being very aggressive activists who say, "I just want my liberty back that I had." Boy, I can't. If you can find two people uh, anywhere that isn't in the business of looking at this, that gave a rat's behind, uh, please let me know. I'd love, love to talk to them. Yeah, and that worries me a lot because we just let it happen. I mean, we didn't. There was no collective outrage. I'm yeah. not talking about sending ships, and I don't. Please don't take it that way. But I am saying we ought to have some collective outrage about what they just did. I mean, we were mad at the Russians for taking Crimea. Well, the Chinese did the same thing to the people of Hong Kong. Yeah. You know, what, what's the difference? And now, to your point, they're saying, guess what? You need to back off on Taiwan, mm -hmm. right? And so they already built militarily uh, the capability to get across the Straits of Taiwan safely, meaning, uh, you know, from the military jargon of all of this, they have the ability to uh, stop any, uh, uh, what they would term, adversarial uh, Navy vessels from coming into the Straits to, to stop them from doing what they need to do. They've invested a lot of money, time, energy uh, into having the appropriate defense for an offensive operation into Taiwan. Now they come to Alaska and basically say, you all need to drop your rhetoric on Taiwan. That's part of China. Uh, and, they're, and they're scaring people around the world on this. You think there's a risk that Taiwan has military interaction with the, the motherland, the, the, the sort of mothership in the near future? You know, I think China is smart. I think China will do to Taiwan what they just did to Hong Kong. They're going to continue the pressure. What, what they're trying to do now is isolate the rest of the world from saying anything bad, you know, and little things matter to the Chinese. So, uh, you know, visits of U.S. delegations to Taiwan are frowned upon and they talk bad about them and they... Yeah. And, yeah. and by the way, that saying that uh, Taiwan is a separate independent country can get you in trouble in China. Yeah. Right? And they have changed people's conversations yeah. outside of China. They've already changed people's conversations. Why? Well, we don't want to offend China. Yep. Okay. So you're ready to sacrifice the liberty and freedom of another country. And, I, and China's smart and they're patient. Uh, yeah. They've been at this a while. Now they've they've already started. This what's new is them saying, "Guess what, world? We're as bad and as as aggressive as the United States is. Except we don't we don't we we won't show up and promote liberty. We're just going to show up and take what you got." And so I worry that Taiwan it will be next. I don't think there'll be a conflict. I think you'll see some civil unrest, mm -hmm. but you won't see you know military on military conflict. They'll just just like you did in, in Hong Kong. And yep. over time, and then they'll start taking the legislative seats and they'll just keep pushing it out. Next thing you know, it will uh, be 
exactly part of China, just the way they want it to have their rules apply. That's the way I think they're going to do it. Personally. Yeah, interesting. Uh, there's there's uh, there's a lot of possibilities there. I, I, I foresee that. I want to come back to this global outrage or sort of the outrage uh, that you hinted at that there wasn't with Hong Kong. There seems to be, maybe it's early days, maybe it's just present, maybe I'm suffering from recency bias of my own work recently reading on this, but Xinjiang and cotton seem to be generating some outrage. I mean, sort of the forced labor, uh, some of these BBC videos, others, I understand the Chinese dispute them, but, um, you know, the Xinjiang debate that are sort of the, you're starting to see whether it was, you know, big U.S. companies, Nike said, hey, we're not going to use Xinjiang cotton. We're not going to participate in that. You know, H&M retailers, you saw Zara, you see even the Japanese clothing, fabric. And then you see the Chinese protesting that, which elevated the issue, actually, in in an interesting way. Um, I'm curious how you think outrage there may play out. Well, I am always suspect of companies who get outraged when they get caught. Yeah. Yeah, I refuse to believe that they didn't understand fully why their labor costs were where they were at. I mean, please, um, you know, I just don't believe that, that they were that naive. Well, that they're here is a better better place than not being here. Uh, but I think this is again to that understanding. And uh, I think this could be a really good event for the United States, understanding um, Average citizens who are already starting to say, well, you know, I'm a little suspect of China. They don't dislike Chinese. They Mm -hmm. do dislike the Chinese Communist Party uh, that allows for slave labor uh, in cotton that is actually re-educating Uyghurs. I don't know why we as Americans aren't outraged that the Chinese Communist Party is going through re-education camps. Does yep. this sound Orwellian? It's happening. Yeah. And so, but we are like, ah, well, whatever. We're, we're mad at ourselves for fill in the blank today. Yeah. Uh, and, and we're shooting at each other uh, versus trying to say, try to understand what the Chinese Communist Party is trying to accomplish. And so, I, listen, I, I think companies should be held accountable for this. If mm-hmm. you know for a fact your labor rates are below lowest standards ever anywhere in the world. <laughs> You know, with no, almost, well, that, that tells me you have no standard, but you think that's okay to take advantage of because you got, you know, two quarters to think about. Well, then, you know, we spent a lot of time and I, I, listen, I'm in the free market and I believe in this stuff and I've got companies I want to go, but, you know, God help us all. If we just decide that that can come at the cost of someone's dignity overseas, right? I, I, yeah. Shame on us. I think that's not capitalism to me, by the way. Yeah. People yeah. want to blame capitalism for that. I no. Yeah. You know, capitalism is everybody wins. You know, the rising tide lifts all boats. Yep. Uh, and, and there's some notion that I can suppress a, a, a whole a whole population of people to build my stuff. Yeah. So I can, make, you know, make my quarterly inner. I, I, that part of Somehow we've distorted ourselves along. Oh, it's horrifying. And then you get into whether they're involved with solar and what they're doing there. I mean, sort of the whole thing to me, as I dig into it, really disturbed me. And I'm pleased to hear that, you know, the Senate's got some some uh, activity and some bills there that may be coming forth pretty soon on this particular topic. Um, Let me turn to the sort of you touched on surveillance and let's talk about 5G more more globally. Um, 
the Brits were sort of saying, hey, you know what? We can keep 5G equipment over here from Huawei, but over here we'll have this other equipment. Maybe there's other ways. Is this binary? Is this choose a side, Mike? Is this sort of, or is it well, more nuanced? Is, we are getting right back to where the, the problem was. So I spent a lot of time and effort on the 5G issue here and abroad with our 5i partners. So the 5i partners are Canada, the United States, New Zealand, Australia, and Great Britain. And we had mixed messages coming out of these countries. And so uh, someone called and said, hey, could you help us on the narrative of this and at least explain security problems to our friends, which I was happy and, and yep. eager to do. And the biggest problems we had at the time, well, the Canadians were still trying to figure it out. And the Brits were like, we don't have a problem. We don't think there's a security problem. Their own report in July, and I had to report this, uh, I testified in front of the, the British Defense uh, Committee, uh, I guess it was last year. Their own report showed that the equipment that they tested, remember they, they went through, uh, Great Britain went through and said, we're gonna test all the equipment that Huawei's yep. gonna give us to put up on the poles. Okay. What happened was the equipment and the software that they actually put up on the pole was different than the equipment and the software that they gave to them for testing. They were not binary equivalent. And they acknowledged it in their report, but they still said, ah, well, we think we can handle it. So imagine this, a company, could you imagine this, a company in the United States basically lying to the government by saying we produce X, we don't really produce X, right? We produce something up, we'd be outraged. We would go, my God, well, you can't trust that company. It's exactly what Huawei did uh, in Great Britain. And so I believe this argument was not security related. I talked to a lot of security people in Great Britain from, uh, from all of their intel agencies, including the the parliamentarians who were more favorable to, hey, let's try to get this right. Uh, it was about trade. So the, the pressure from political folks were like, hey, we can't walk away from Chinese trade. And so if we take what we know as a bad company, think about this, right? This isn't about, uh, you know, some fair equitable exchange on, on trading. This was about, we know it's a bad company. We know we can't trust it. We know that will likely steal our citizens' data. But we'll put up with that as long as we can continue to trade in China, because China uses uh, trade as an economic extortion tool. And they're very good at it. Very good at it. And so we finally got there. I, uh, uh, we still have some issues. There are still some people that don't want to believe it. We finally got there on the five eyes. They all agreed. Even Great Britain said, you know what? You're right. This is bad. We can't police it. We can't get ahead of it. Remember, if I patch your system from Beijing, you win. Beijing yep. wins. And so we got, we were getting through that. Uh, but that's why this is such an important fight. And they also understand, the Chinese Communist Party understands that the economic value of 5G with, uh, with our ability to have low latency, um, you know, gives us driverless cars. It gives us all the things sure. that we want to have, robots that can do certain tasks. All of that's possible with a solid 5G system. But it also opens up citizens to a level of threat matrix that's damn near impossible to get over if we don't build security in upfront and we don't have trusted vendors. And so this is all about, can you be a trusted vendor? I don't think Huawei can be a trusted vendor. I think they've shown it over and over and over again. What do you think about, is it over, is this too extreme a reaction? Like if I go running around and I interact with a handful of corporate boardrooms and I say, listen, you got to get rid of all your Chinese software that touches your systems. Like, is that too extreme? Is this, is it 
I mean, there's there's probably some Chinese stuff that's safe now, or, or do we need to really be I, on edge? Uh, I'm, I'm sure there is some Chinese gear that is safe. However, there's a national security law in China that says if you're a company that does business in China, um, you are forced to give us anything we ask for when it comes to your data. Anything. No questions asked. We come in and say we want it. And if you saw that Alibaba backed down, they were going to fight the Chinese Communist Party government. They said, nope, not going to do it. We'll give you what you want. Yep. Uh, Tencent, all of them. Uh, TikTok, why the big fight over TikTok, right? Yep. All that data is being collected and stored and they're building their AI algorithms to understand relationships and whatnot through TikTok. Yep. So if you think about all of those things, I, my argument is until they decide that they want to be and play by the rules uh, of international commerce, I'd be really reluctant wow. to have their gear inside my system anywhere. Yeah, because uh, I don't, I don't, I, I no longer have control of the decisions on what happens to that data, then I lose. Yeah. And so I, no, I think people who want it on the fringes, okay, but then you better air gap whatever you have inside and, and be careful of that too, because they're going to try to figure a way around it. Interesting. I spent a lot of time in Asia. In 2019, I did a, a big tour where I went to a bunch of countries, everything, Australia, Singapore, uh, Thailand, Philippines, all the way up to Japan. And I met with the uh, senior leadership of a large Japanese bank. And they had just decided earlier that month that all Lenovo equipment was getting yanked. No more use of it. Just We're just, that's it. No Lenovo equipment in the system. No Chinese manufactured technology. Um, and so, you know, I, I think, and think of the cost of that. And so what they determined is the cost of the possible loss of data in our networks was worse than the cost of ripping it out and having to replace it, which is really expensive to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, here in the U S there's been uh, rules put in place that they had to get it out of our, our telecommunications networks around the country, Chinese gear, uh, but the government also put up, I want to say, uh, I, I forget what the number is, $4 billion, maybe, maybe $5 billion, uh, to help those small rural carriers. And remember, the Chinese went in and said, you know, we're going to give you this stuff for almost nothing. And, you know, there was a reason for that. It wasn't because they were interested in uh, using that as a kind of loss leader to get more business. They wanted access to the, your data. Sure. And they, they didn't care if they made money. Yeah. Yeah. And that's been this big thing. I mean, tell me a company, there's reports that Huawei would go to a place and say, we're going to give you our engineers. Uh, we'll, we'll build your towers and your equipment uh, and we'll operate it, meaning we'll control the operation of it. And you don't have to pay us for five years, not yeah. a penny. Yeah. Name a Western company that has the ability to survive that. You can't. Yeah, yeah. And so that's, I mean, this isn't rocket science that we understand what they're doing. Yes, it's cheap and free. And what I, what we got pushed back from, from a lot of corporate America at the time was, yeah, but it's so cheap yeah. and it's, and it's not bad. Well, it's not bad because they stole it from Cisco, but okay, I got you. But the problem is we can't allow you to, to worry. You know, they just weren't getting over this notion that they were helping somebody do bad things in the country. Yeah, interesting. Uh, let me change gears for just one second. I'm going to come back to some of these other topics. But one of the things 
my listeners tend to love is uh, book recommendations or favorite books, as well as favorite movies or miniseries. So uh, my guess is you got some fun ones for us, Mike. So <laughs> do you have a recommended or fun? Uh, well, I always book? try to say that the, the my favorite book is the one that I'm reading. Okay. Uh, and I have two, two I'll give you. This one is, it's called 20, oh, yeah. speaking of China. I don't know if you've seen it. I've it, read it. Yeah. It is. Yeah. It. It's a fun book, but what it's supposed to do, uh, honestly, is let you know about the consequences and not paying attention to this, even though it's fiction. Yeah. Um, it, my argument is if you get it, read it. it it's really thought provoking. Both of the, I know personally, both of the authors um, and both of them are great. You know, one is a decorated Marine from Iraq and Afghanistan and Admiral Stravitas was the NATO commander, you know, four-star Admiral, really smart guy doing smart things. And so they wrote this as a, and they're, they're, you know, prolific nonfiction writers, yep. but they decided to do this to show, you know, to draw a bigger audience in about, Hey, you know, we should pay attention to what's going on in China. I think it's great. I thought it was brilliant. Uh, and it's just a fun read. You know, you yeah. can almost read it in a, in a weekend. And I'll tell you my favorite book, and this, if anyone's ever heard of it, it's called uh, An Empire of Wealth from John Steele Gordon. And it's old. Uh, but what it does is it takes, uh, it, it kind of, it, it goes back in history and shows you how the free market accomplished big things even in, you know, expanding railroads or, and, and it used the elements. And it's basically an argument why America is different and special because we've used the power of the free market to open up opportunity and give people hope and aspiration for better things. I, I kind of love it. It's very, if you if anyone's read it, I'll pay you a dollar, but uh, I mean, I loved it. I just, it was a fun book. Actually, I make my kids read it. Okay. Uh, so oh, no, a, that's great. A forced family fun event for them. I'm like, you got to read it. And then we're going to talk about it. <laughs> so those are the two, you know, movies. I feel bad because you mentioned the movie earlier. Uh, the Godfather. To me, that's oh, my old. If you just I, want to forget about everything uh, and, yep. and, and uh, go in, and I love the nicknames because I chase guys with those nicknames. Yep. It's just a fun movie for me. Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you for those recommendations. Oh, by I, the way, I, the best, the best uh, uh, documentary mm -hmm. is Declassified, which talks about American spy stories. It was done by none other than Mike Rogers. Um, so this is this is what we call shilling. I understand. <laughs> um, it's just kind of a great way. What we do is it's a real kind of uh, documentary with the agents and the CIA officers that actually work spy cases. Uh, we did three seasons. It's uh, it's probably uh, uh, behind the wall at uh, CNN Go. So if you get on CNN Go, if you want to have some fun watching, uh, you know, real agents talk about real spies, it's it's really kind of fun. And we do some reenactment in there to make it interesting. So cool, cool. Okay. I had, I, that, that was my shill for that. That's good. No, that's perfect. You're entitled. That's great. Uh, so if we come back to another topic around intelligence that you and I have talked about previously, um, there was this uh, contractor, uh, Mr. Snowden, that uh, created a thorn in your side as well as that of the American side. But specifically, maybe share a little bit about your involvement, interaction, and then thoughts on sort of how big and bad a, a sort of dynamic did this create? Yeah. So I have to tell you, I, uh, I was chairman at the time, chairman of the, the intelligence committee and very engaged in helping authorize and get full disclosure on these things. So some notion that, that people would run around Washington DC say they didn't know anything about it. And oh my gosh, this was highly illegal. 
none of that was true. Now you may not like the program, that's different, yep. but it was not illegal. It was it comported with the constitution, comported with US law, because it was my job amongst others to make sure that that was the case. Uh, and you know, I always say, if I agree to it in a classified setting and it becomes public, I'm not gonna run away from that decision. And so unfortunately, I think in Washington DC, a lot of people ran away from that decision. And I think to, to the, not in the best interest of the United States, candidly. I mean, it may took it away a little political heat, but it, it was not in the best interest. So here's a guy that kind of bounced around the community, had, uh, and he bounced around because he didn't, was not, uh, well, I'll leave that part out. He bounced around the community. That tells you a lot. Um, and ended up in certain places. He deliberately stole, I don't you know, less than 2 million files, but close to 2 million files uh, on different aspects, programs, and intelligence that would have passed through uh, the NSA at one point or another. He had gained himself. Now, he stole credentials in order to do that and that a massive amount, meaning he didn't have authorized access to any of that. He talked about a piece of the program that was certainly, uh, when it became public, controversial, but that was less than, gosh, I mean, if it was 2% of the volume of what he took, is one thing. Um, and he took all that information, said he was angry about that, uh, but never once did he have a whistleblower uh, uh, complaint to any of the five or so agencies he could have picked up the phone and called, mm -hmm. including the House Intelligence Committee. And I took seriously every single whistleblower complaint we ever got. I assigned it to a lawyer. We did our own investigation internally. I don't care what it was. Uh, because I just think that's really important. You you want sure. a place for classified folks to have uh, to say, hey, is this right? Is this and and so the perception of which people had of that program versus what it actually was yeah. was wrong. So the public perception got out that it was one thing. It wasn't that thing. I mean, it just wasn't. And so uh, really destructive. So he takes those you know close to two million files and ends up in Moscow. Uh, under the love and care and feeding of the FSB, which is, you know, their version of the FBI, if you will, right? And so they were paying him and housing him and allowing him to stay there. And uh, if anyone is naive enough to believe that the Russian intelligence services would allow you to come and freelance off of them for not providing anything, yeah. uh, you know, I have a bridge to sell you. I mean, this is this, this, this clearly, I mean, I feel pretty passionate about it because I know the damage that he had done. I did the, you know, participated in the damage assessment from the loss, um, you know, and it hurt, by the way, it, we had to change the way we were operating at the time in Iraq and Afghanistan. And we do believe that it caused some problem for the safety and security of our soldiers in the field, right? How anybody doesn't call that treason is beyond me. Um, anyway, and, and so, and, and let me back up. I, I am a big believer that we have to have public conversations where we can about what the government is doing to keep us safe. Without yeah. the public buy-in, these intelligence agencies can't function. And by the way, that wasn't always popular with the intelligence agencies. I had some rows with them about things we were going to talk about, uh, not because I wanted to hurt their ability to do it, but we needed American citizens to believe and understand and support their work to keep us safe, to think that, that we weren't out trying to find... Uh, you know, about Aunt Mary's bunions uh, mm -hmm. in a small town in Michigan, you know, this, trust me, they're not interested in Aunt Mary's bunions. And so uh, the, what we found was the gap between what the narrative was and what the reality was, was pretty significant. 
but we were too late. Yeah, and I was working with the Obama administration. Once we knew this was coming out, I said, hey, let's get ahead of this. Let's try to, and I was, I was a Republican. I was working with the Democrats on this because I approved it. I, and I told the president, I will be out there saying I approved. I, I, this is not a partisan issue, nor should we treat it as one. Uh, and I also got the ticket to go to Brussels to have the first round of conversations at a political level uh, mm-hmm. about what this meant. And you know, we were getting attacked by these parliamentarians who really were buying what the newspaper said, and we could not get them to understand that wasn't the truth. Boy, it was it was maybe the most fun. I'd love to have that year of my life back because yeah. uh, it was just brutal. And we were just trying to basically trying to get people to understand exactly what it did, how what what protections we built into it, uh, and and how it was being operated. Uh, and, and just how much scrutiny this this thing had, and we were getting beat up by you know Russians and Chinese who have no oversight of their intelligence services, uh, and they were gleefully involved in these conversations. It was really quite a mess, honestly. Well, it's sad because the the moral high ground of our actual process, which actually took place, got sort of hijacked as a narrative by these others, which is disappointing. So. We're going to run out of time here, Mike, but I do have, uh, I have so many questions. I can't keep up with them. But one I think is appropriate that lots of people would be curious. Um, what do you think about the way the Biden administration is, quote unquote, playing the game uh, in this world uh, internationally, whether it's U.S. v. China, U.S. v. Russia, cyber, the whole dynamic of this uh, thing? Yep. Any reflections on how uh, President I Biden is? A little too early to tell. I do think they've had some missteps uh already on the China. They were caught off guard on China, and I don't know how they could have been caught off guard on China. I don't know if maybe they got ahead of their skis on making sure their whole team was up to up to uh, snuff on what China's actually been doing, mm-hmm. right? And, and again, we should never do our diplomacy by based on headlines in the newspaper. There's a little, so much more that we know and, and understand. And so when they went to uh, Alaska, and got slapped around, if you will, by the Chinese. They were shocked. I know this because I've talked to some folks inside the administration. They were shocked. And I kept saying, how can you be shocked? This, they believe they're in a different place. They're telling the world they're in a different place. So I, you know, my argument is some missteps. I mean, I could talk for an hour about uh, Afghanistan and why I think this is a really, really bad decision uh, for the future uh, of stability in that area including ab- abandoning about 12 million women that we've asked to come out of the back of their homes and participate in society. Uh, we're going to walk away from them. The Taliban has no use for them. Um, anyway, I, 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 I listen, I, I think that now the one thing I will say they're, so, they're better about doing is reaching out. They reached out to me on the, on the Afghan okay. piece beforehand. I, I, as they know, I will always tell them if I agree or disagree, and I'll be passionate both ways. Um, and so I, so at least they're doing that. I, I'm hoping that they get their, do a little better homework before they engage. Mm-hmm. Uh, remember some of the things they were saying that, that Trump did about not coordinating with our allies. They made the decision on Afghanistan. Then they went to NATO to tell them. Mm-hmm. I'm like, what? Well, you know, tell me if that's, isn't that the same thing? What did I miss? Uh, and I didn't like the way Trump was handling the Afghan situation either. So, it's, I'm, you know, this is not a partisan thing for me. Um, sure. I, you know, I worry what we're doing. On uh, I tell you what I do like they did. They're bringing in some real pros on the cybersecurity front. Oh, good. Uh, to be in uh, places of, of authority. I think that's really, really smart. 
Um, that part I'm really happy about. Uh, you know, Chris Inglis, who's the first director of the cybersecurity unit that, that's getting created at the White House. The guy is more than a pro. He was the deputy at NSA. I worked with him forever. Mm -hmm. uh, really, really strong candidate. Uh, Jen Easterly is going to head up uh, the, the organization that's supposed to share threat information across the government. She's a NSA professional for years, really, really good. And then the personal advisor to the president, a guy named, uh, or a woman named uh, Ann uh, Nuremberg, uh, Newberg, her, Newberger, sorry. Um, fantastic. I worked with her at the NSA, really good. So they got a really good cadre to get a handle on something candidly, we in the United States are not prepared for and our ad adversaries are. So I think that was a really important turning point. So I have some differences. I'm excited about so few places, but uh, yeah. you know, like I said, I'll work with anybody if in the in the cause of national security. Awesome. Well, Mike, listen, we're out of time, but I really want to thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your service to the country. I think we're uh, we're all better off for having had uh, someone like you. Uh, take the time out of a career that could have been promising in so many ways to go spend a little uh, tour of duty in government and, and then go off and, uh, you know, help create the technologies and startups to, to sort of help us. Uh, so, so thank you, Mike, thanks for uh, taking the time to talk with me and I look forward to future conversations. Well, thanks for coming out. And for everyone listening, don't just because it looks so God awful, don't stop yourself from trying to serve the government in some capacity. I, this, it was the love of my life. I am honored in, uh, to have been able to do it the entire time you know, for those 27 years of mixed service, army, FBI, and government. Um, and it, it really did, uh, it, I think, shaped me. And, and I hope I, I left the country a little bit better off in the places I could influence. And so you all could do that too. Uh, you just have to have people who have the right mentality to get in. So I'm a highly encouraged of it, despite what you see and despite all the drawdowns uh, to do that, because we need good people in government, uh, you know, and, and it's OK if you disagree with the common whatever. It's good. That's a good thing. This is America. We're, we're supposed to disagree. We just don't need to be disagreeable about it. That's right. Well, the civic duty, bringing back a sense of civic uh, engagement and duty and, and sort of patriotism, whether it's in corporate land or, or even on the individual level or even small communities, uh, that I think is something that we could all benefit from and it'll, it'll be good for all of us. So, yeah. Well, uh, thanks for you being in the conversation. I appreciate it very much. <laughs> thanks very much, Mike. I appreciate it. All thanks. right. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Think for Yourself podcast. And please do subscribe to the podcast series on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, or Spotify.